0: We come back and could radio drama work in 1973? And had enough time passed? And was it a you know niche market? I don't know that I ever looked at things that detailed. I kind of had an idea, and I said, "Let's see if I can make it work." You know, it was it it wasn't this long, thought out, step by step process. It was a little more seat of the pants in, in a way. I think what I thought was we could start a new trend we could start something others
1: might follow i do think i did see a nostalgia wave coming and from the studios of the hollywood radio theater in hollywood california the mutual broadcasting system brings you an important premier press conference now to the waldorf and your host ken fairchild
2: good morning ladies and gentlemen and welcome to the mutual broadcasting system and hollywood radio theater's premier press conference Introducing Zero Hour, a new radio drama series. While we're here in New York's Waldorf, a group of outstanding performers, producers, and technicians have gathered in the Hollywood Radio Theater studios in Hollywood for a new radio production. Not only will we be exchanging information, announcements, and questions with them, Mr. Gary J. Worth, Vice President of the Mutual Broadcasting System, Mr. J. M. Colos, President of the Hollywood Radio Theater, Both of these proceedings are being simultaneously broadcast coast-to-coast by a closed circuit to the more than 630 mutual radio network affiliates around the United States. To his right, Mr. Rod Serling, who is host and narrator of Zero Hour. You'll be hearing more from these gentlemen. But before we continue, let's switch to Hollywood for their introductions by the producer-director of Zero Hour, Mr. Elliot
3: Lewis. Good morning.
2: Welcome to California. We're
3: all gathered here... uh... November first, 1973, the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, in New York City. We're listening in on a press conference hosted by the Mutual Broadcasting System. They purchased the rights to air the Zero Hour from the Just Heard J.M. Colos. The Zero Hour has been hosted by Rod Serling and directed by Elliot Lewis. It's Mutual's first dramatic radio show in nearly 20 years. We're keeping
1: track of all of this, and I see our 30 seconds is up, and we give it back to you, New York. Thank you, Elliot. Let me
2: introduce the gentleman we've just been joined by here at the Waldorf in New York, Chairman of the Board of the Mutual Broadcasting Corporation, Mr. John Hardin, to my immediate right. And now I'd like to introduce to you again the President of the Mutual Broadcasting System, Mr. C. Edward Little.
1: Uh, thank you, Ken, and good morning, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome each of you to our press conference and have you share with me the excitement of this occasion in which Mutual is announcing the return of new mystery drama to network radio, which we feel was the original birthplace of radio drama. The Mutual Broadcasting System has devoted many months in extensive research in our quest to develop and present an outstanding drama series. As a national radio network with responsibility to more than 630 affiliates and to millions of listeners throughout the United States, we wanted to be absolutely certain that we would present only a high-quality product. We are now proud to introduce Mutual's new and exciting mystery drama series entitled Zero Hour, featuring original dramas written especially for radio starring Hollywood's greatest names, Patty Duke, Nina Fosh, Tina Wynn, Richard Kerner, along with many others, and hosted by Rod Serling.
3: To be premiered, on the Mutual Network Monday, December the 17th. As Mutual Broadcasting spent much of the 1950s changing ownership groups, while national advertising was slowly abandoning radio for TV, Mutual ended its last two remaining half-hour dramas, Counterspy and Gangbusters, in November of
1: 1957.
3: Sports and news began to take up the majority of the network's programming. Throughout the 1960s, more frequent ownership and management changes continued to create network instability, before C. Edward Little was named president in 1972.
1: Many of us recapture the memories of the old pattern of listening to radio dramas, but will also encourage an entirely new generation of young Americans to exercise their imaginations and discover for themselves a new form of radio entertainment.
3: During his time as president, Little created the Mutual Black Network the Mutual Spanish Network, and the Mutual Southwest Network.
1: Mr. Producer, Mr. Rod Serling, host.
3: Under Little's administration, Mutual became the first commercial broadcasting entity to use satellite technology for program delivery. He also hired Larry King to host an all-night phone-in talk show. King was a one-time announcer for Little at WGMA in Florida. He went on to national fame in both radio and TV, winning a coveted Peabody Award along the way. Ladies and gentlemen, you know what we're planning to do? But that's not why we're eavesdropping in 1973. We're here for the return of dramatic programming on network radio in the form of the Zero Hour, which had been airing in syndication since the fall.
2: Involved in this project, what will include a sound glimpse behind the scenes of production. Let you hear firsthand how much better today's techniques and electronic equipment can capture the suspense of new radio drama. Let's join them in the studio.
3: Why is this such a momentous event? How did we get to this point? Tonight, we'll find out.
0: I think people were so thrilled to do it. It was something that hadn't been done for a while. Happy to be working in that environment and having an Elliot Lewis direct them. And it was just a lot of fun. And it was different. It was something different for them. So there was definitely a lot of camaraderie. I don't remember any incident or backstabbing or that kind of stuff. It was a lot of fun and I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that everyone was just happy to be there. Certainly wasn't the money. It was just doing something that was creative and different and not what they normally did every day. So that's what we got, you know, we got TV actors and actresses and film people and there's never an issue about them getting paid after scale.
3: Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 146. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we spotlight the rebirth of radio drama in the form of The Zero Hour, which aired in syndication in 1973, before being purchased by the Mutual Broadcasting System. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform, and at thewallbreakers.com tonight's opening song is 80 drums around the world's rendition of caravan It is perhaps a perfect mondo exotica composition for radio drama in the 1970s join the breaking walls facebook group to keep in touch with news snippets photos and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com group thewallbreakers the wallbreakers and the first eight chapters of burning gotham are out everywhere you can get a podcast at burninggotham.com It was a 2022 official Tribeca Film Festival audio selection You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash the wallbreakers
0: or communication. I went to University of Southern California. I was a communications major. I guess I minored in radio and television. That was my interest, but I knew that I didn't want to be in the insurance business, and I'm using that as a metaphor for... I knew that I wanted to do something either in entertainment or advertising, communication. I probably didn't know exactly what at that time. I had just got out of the Army. I graduated high school, and the um, Army had a six-month reserve program, which allowed you to go active duty, and then you kind of went to meetings for a number of years. I took advantage of that program, and when I finished, I went on to USC, and I don't think I have a specific recollection of what I wanted to be at USC. Interestingly enough, I had several part-time jobs, one of which was a page at CBS TV City. Another one was working for one of the local TV stations. I actually was on radio at USC. They had a classical radio station. I didn't last long because I had trouble pronouncing all those Russian classical composers.
4: Now, just turn around real slow and don't get any stupid ideas, okay? Like you said, you ain't going to give me no argument, no argument at all. Now,
5: look here, kid. Uh, mister, there ain't no need. I, I told you, there's the cash register. Help yourself. Five bills? Five crummy bills? Mister, I don't want no trouble. You can have whatever's here. Just take it and go, okay? <laughs>
4: Theater 5 presents Mr. James Earl Jones in Incident on U.S. 1.
3: The last network big four radio drama, Theater 5, ran on ABC and was launched on August 3rd, 1964. Fortunately, by the mid-1960s, network radio had undergone a transformation. Theatre 5's half-hour time slot only allocated 21 minutes of story time. The other nine minutes went to news, station identification, and local advertising. ABC's affiliates also had the first right of refusal. In some big markets, Theatre Five ran on other stations. 256 total episodes were produced before Theater 5 was canceled after the July 30th, 1965 episode. For the next seven years, except for any dramatic vignettes on NBC's Monitor, NBC, CBS, ABC and Mutual Broadcasting's network-fed programming was relegated to news, sports, talk, and music. Then in early 1973, an entrepreneurial ad man named J.M. Colos had a big idea. He grew up in Southern California around the entertainment and media industry. The work at CBS was part-time
0: while I was going to USC. Then I went to work in a mailroom at an advertising agency. They had a training program. That's kind of how you got started. It was called Carson Roberts. They were a terrific little boutique agency on the West Coast. Handled Mattel Toys was their first account. Mattel had just gotten off the ground. It was a garage operation initially after that i went to work for a small agency spent about five years with them and one day decided that either it was now or never took a count or two with me and opened up my own little agency and was in the advertising business did pretty well pretty quickly but also started doing a lot of entrepreneurial things entertainment wise bottom line answer is that i've always been driven to uh, try to execute on ideas that I had. If I could come up with something, I wanted to see if I could
3: actually make it work. Colos's idea? He sensed an oncoming nostalgia wave and wanted to relaunch a high-production serialized audio drama, but updated for the modern sensibilities of
0: 1973. I was very, and always have been, very entrepreneurial. I've always kind of been into nostalgia, and uh, in fact, some of my later things would indicate that as well. So, something probably that I heard, maybe some article about radio. It probably was sparked from something that I read, and uh, as I said, I probably uh, said, hey, there's maybe an idea there. Uh, It's been a while. I was heavily involved in the advertising marketing business, and, and dealt with broadcast, radio, and television stations. And I thought it might be kind of fun to see if I could make it work. And that's probably
3: the genesis of the idea. San Mateo Times, February 20th, 1973. The revival of radio drama has been hinted for the past couple of years. Right now, however, radio drama is a Hollywood business again, with a number of studios producing shows for the market. Rod Serling is going to host a weekly series of five half-hour installments called The Zero Hour. Patty Duke Astin, John Astin, and Howard Duff have been set for the first show, with Elliot Lewis directing. AFTRA, which has been suffering in the radio field, has entered radio production independently. Five half-hour pilots are in the works. The demand for new, modern drama has come as a result of shows all over America, which have been playing some of the classics. Bob Foster, Screenings Colos needed a hook. He felt that by telling one story in five half-hours over the course of a contained week, he could keep the listeners' attention and get them to tune back in. Enter Rod Serling, famed creator of The Twilight Zone. Serling had worked in radio in Springfield, Marion, Columbus, and Cincinnati, Ohio.
0: Rod Serling, you know, was my choice. He was a terrific guy. He lived in the Palisades, Pacific Palisades, fairly close to where I lived. So I thought of him as the host, and I asked around, and somebody gave me his number, home number, and I called him. And we hit it off, and guess we met. And he loved the concept, and it was a pretty easy arrangement. So he was already in place when Elliot Lewis came on board, and we put the production team together.
3: Colos was soon put in touch with producer Jack Myers.
0: I don't remember how I got a hold of Jack. He wasn't, as I was talking to people about this idea, perhaps someone had mentioned Jack, somebody that knew his way around the business, and then I talked to Jack, and then put me in touch with Elliot, and uh, I put together kind of the outline, the concept of what I was looking for, then we put the package together, and that's
3: kind of how it started. The Elliot that Jay Colos references is Elliot Lewis once called Mr. Radio, as Lewis was simultaneously involved in the production of five shows. By 1973, he had nearly 40 years of experience as a writer, director, actor, and producer.
5: Yeah, it started with the five-part stories, which was Colos's idea, Jay Colos, when he hired me to do it, and we did those, and it was to be syndicated. I have always felt that everybody in the entertainment business should know enough about every part of the entertainment business so that they respect what the other people are doing. Any actor who comes in and mutters about a script should be sat in front of a typewriter and put a piece of yellow paper in the typewriter and say, fade in, interior Lucy's living room day. She comes down the stairs, her hair and curlers, go. <laughs> Give me the other 32 pages, you know, and then argue about, is this a good script or a bad script? And conversely, the writer, who is, oh, these lines are so precious, should be made to stand in front of an audience and read aloud a bad joke and look like a fool. As the actor does, while the guy, you look into the wings and the writer just went, oh, well. Well, they all right right on, baby. And you're standing there with mud on your face. You know, you just made one of those big things and nothing happened.
3: And the writer's going home. (laughs) Colos was able to secure the rights to several stories. Now he needed acting talent.
0: When I was putting the budgeting together or thinking about what it was going to cost to produce these shows, I went to AFTRA, American Federation of Television Radio Artists, and I said, look, I want to bring back old radio and what is the scale and how does that work and you know what are we talking about from a union standpoint and well they didn't laugh me out of the office they thought i was a little bit nuts and said i we you know we don't know we haven't done it i don't know and they gave me some figure which was maybe eighty dollars a segment something like that which meant that an actor would get four hundred dollars for doing the five shows sounds pretty good you know they were gonna go along with it. So and then they, you know, they wished me luck, but they kinda kinda got the sense they thought I was just some um, nut off the street.
3: The goal was to pair name brand film and TV talent with the best Hollywood radio veterans. Howard Duff could have fit into either category. How
4: long was the Phantom Pilot on the air, or in the air? About two and a half years, That's as cool. I remember. Mm-hmm. Then I, when I went off, then I starved for a little while, and. Elliot Lewis helped me, uh, and finally, I was able to crack this magic circle of uh, radio actors. They were uh, rather tight. It was tight. Should we say yeah. snobbish? I don't know. Yeah. And this <laughs> is still prior to uh, the Second World War, huh? This right? is prior to, to World War Deuce, yeah. yeah. And there is this nucleus of actors
5: on the West Coast that do 98% well, there were, of the there work. I would say
4: roughly uh, about the Magic 20, what was it, uh, or so, something like that, who did most of the work.
5: Yeah, like Hans Conrad and William Hans
4: Conrad. Conry. Oh, the whole bunch of guys. Frank Nelson,
3: uh,
4: Lou Merrill, Elliot Lewis, uh, Kathy Lewis, who was then his wife.
3: By the 1970s, Duff and Elliot Lewis had been friends for 30 years. They both helped grow the Armed Forces Radio Service during World War II.
4: And then I'm back in the infantry again and at Salina, Kansas, of all places, and I got orders to come to uh, Hollywood. Are you ready for this, for the Armed Forces Radio Service? It was the talk of the, the whole division. <laughs> this dumb fool is going to Hollywood.
5: And what was it like in the Armed Forces? This was a pioneering effort in those days. And the Armed Forces Radio Service? Yes, that part of your career, yes. Well, actually, the they, didn't, the they didn't
4: really know what to do with people like myself, who actually, I was not a writer per se. I was not a producer. I was not a director. So Elliot Lewis and myself and Alan Hewitt and a couple of other people were put in charge of, uh, Elliot and I originally, we recorded regular commercial programs off the air. And then we had to reassemble them because of censorship reasons, you know, in wartime, where certain things were verboten. And we reproduced them, as a matter of fact. That was our job. It was a separate department. We turned out an awful lot of programs
5: a week. You actually contributed to the saving of thousands and thousands of radio shows. I did? Because Absolutely. Because, you see, the networks never preserved the radio shows. I, I mean, they were all done live. Nobody bothered to record all them. All that was they destroyed. Just, right. They went out. AFRS put these things. You edited out the commercials, and you put them on the disks, and then the disks were shipped all over the world. Sure. Long after the war, long after radio really had kind of moved out of the picture as it was as we knew it in those 30s and 40s. Some of these discs were found by G.I.s who grew up listening to those shows, and they made tapes of them and sent them back home, and if it wouldn't have been for... That's probably the best thing that ever came out of World War II with the yeah. fact that those old radio shows... Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't
4: really aware of that. Somebody said, gee, I heard one of your old shows on the air. And I said, well, I don't know where anybody would get a hold of a recording because I asked CBS at one time. Uh, they had it. no, they destroyed them all. Yeah. Because I don't even have one one lousy acetate <laughs> from all those uh, well, five I'll years. You, I'll send
5: you a tape. <laughs> Thank if you. I like.
4: yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, you no, know, somebody there.
3: did send me a tape. Duff was chosen along with Patty Duke and John Aston, to lead the first cast in an adaptation of Bill S. Ballinger's The Wife of the Red-Haired Man. Colos put the program under the umbrella of the Hollywood Radio Theater. They chose Radio Recorders, the largest independent studio in Los Angeles, for the program.
0: The Hollywood Radio Theater presents Zero Hour. It was nothing more than just an umbrella. Was I thinking about other programming? No. I think it was just... Device. I don't think there was anything more to it than just an umbrella name. Presents Zero Hour. That was that was the idea. I think it was radio recorders. There was two studios doing a lot of commercials too. So I was we were using recording studios. Gold Star was one that I remember, but I think it may have been radio
3: recorders. New York, Associated Press, April 25th, 1973. It's hard to believe, but there's a guy running loose who says he's got a different kind of new mystery series. What makes me agree with him? The series is for radio. He's J.M. Colos, and he's from L.A., where many strange ideas often occur. The strangest? Someone these days can sell a half-hour, five-day-a-week radio series, complete with sound effects. But the selling is brisk, according to Kolos, who says 110 radio stations in the U.S. have bought the new series called The Zero Hour. He hopes to have a total of 300 stations signed up for July. If you're a confirmed television buff, you may think Kolos has a screw loose. But if you are a radio freak, you may see, or hear as this case may be, what he's up to. There's been a gradual nationwide revival of old radio series like The Lone Ranger and The Green Hornet, Charles Mickelson, a New Yorker who leases these and other shows to radio stations, says more than 400 now carry them. What Colos is doing is simply coming up with a modern version of the good old radio days, and as he puts it, trying to anticipate a trend. A few established Hollywood stars have joined the effort. Writer-producer Rod Serling will be the host. The series premiere week will star Howard Duff, Patty Duke, and John Astin. The show will take the form of a five-part story each week. The admonition to tune in tomorrow to see who survived what. Ironically, Kolos barely remembers the golden days of radio. He's only 32. I used to hide the radio under the pillow at night and listen to the old shows, he said. But they went out before I really had a chance to get into them. Jay Sharp. The Zero Hour would debut in late summer.